0: Welcome to the podcast entitled Type 2 Diabetes: Exploring the Risks and Benefits of Emerging Type 2 Therapies. This podcast was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Merck. The content for this podcast was adapted from an interview with Susan Cornell that was recorded on December 4th, 2011, during the 46th ASHP Midyear Clinical Meeting and Exhibition in New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. Cornell is Assistant Director of Experiential Education and Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Midwestern University Chicago College of Pharmacy in Downers Grove, Illinois. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Cornell. Thank you for having me. In your presentation today, you mentioned there are currently 10 classes of medication available to treat type 2 diabetes. With such a large selection, how does the practitioner choose? It's actually
1: very simple. Really, every clinician needs to individualize therapy. Not one therapy fits all patients. So recognizing who is your patient. Uh, One of the things we need to keep in mind is the longer a patient has diabetes, the less beta cell function they have. So first question you have is what is the duration of diabetes? Because if we need functioning beta cell, then you're requiring endogenous insulin secretion. And again, the longer patient has diabetes, the less endogenous insulin is available. The quality and the quantity diminish over time. So if you're choosing a therapy that requires endogenous insulin, then you're going to have to basically take that into consideration. The other thing that we need to think about is the fact that within diabetes, as I mentioned today in my presentation, there's actually six broken organs in type 2. And there's no one drug therapy currently available that will actually treat and fix all six of those broken organs. Many of our therapies will fix one organ, some will fix two, some three or four, but not one drug therapy actually fixes all six. So when we're picking our therapies, we need to keep in mind we have to fix all six broken organs, and that's where combination therapy or a combination of medication therapy with lifestyle therapy will actually benefit the patient. So... When we're looking at our patient, again, looking at how long have they had the disease, so what is their beta cell function like, what can we do to preserve that beta cell function, the next thing we want to look at is fasting glucose and postprandial. Which one of those is not in control? Which one is out of whack, I like to say? So sometimes it's both. And choosing therapy that will actually fix the fasting or postprandial or both. So for example, if you have a patient who is somewhat newly diagnosed Or in early diagnosis, it's the postprandial level that is elevated. But oftentimes, we may choose an agent like metformin to actually prescribe to the patient. Metformin fixes fasting, but it doesn't do anything for postprandial. So in that case, you need to make sure that either the patient's eating small, frequent meals to control their postprandial, or they're taking a second agent to also fix the postprandial. So you know, to kind of summarize, we want to make sure that we're choosing therapy that will save the beta cell function. Fixing both the postprandial as well as the fasting blood glucose. And then we also have to look, finally, at the side effect profile. You know, Patients are overwhelmed upon diagnosis and at any point during having their disease. And you know they're told, eat healthy, lose weight, exercise, quit smoking, take medication. All of this is coming at them at once, and they don't know where to start. And then, oh yeah, by the way, here's a medication that will help you to control your sugar, but then it causes weight gain. It's kind of defeating the purpose of of the medication therapy. And if you think about it just simply stated, we're setting the patient up for failure. So it's not that the patient is failing themselves, it's the drug is failing the patient. And this is where, again, the right therapy, oftentimes in combination, is necessary for the patient to control their
0: diabetes. So hopefully that makes sense. It sounds like the incretin-based therapies are growing in popularity. Where do you see incretin's place in therapy in the management of type 2 diabetes?
1: Again, great question. I do believe that incretin-based therapies are the wave of the future. I mean, again, if we go back to those six broken organs in type 2 diabetes, incretin therapies are actually one of the only drug classes, be it the DPP-4 inhibitors or the GLP-1 agonists, that actually fix multiple organs. DPP-4 inhibitors actually fix three of the broken organs, whereas GLP-1 agonists will actually fix four of the broken organs. So you can actually get a lot of bang for your buck out of one drug here. And then once again, combining it with lifestyle therapy, we have the potential of fixing all six of those broken organs. So again, I do see that incretin therapies are going to be the wave of the future. The other big thing, too, is looking at their side effect profile. You know, many drugs, or at least traditional therapies, tended to cause weight gain, hypoglycemia, may or may not have done a lot to save the beta cell. What we do know about incretin therapies are they have a very low risk of hypoglycemia, especially when they're used as monotherapy. As far as weight gain, they actually promote weight loss or they're weight neutral. And it seems early evidence suggests that they actually do save the beta cell. So they do have some ability to preserve that beta cell function, meaning that these therapies will last quite a long time before they fail the patient.
0: There are many patients and even some healthcare providers that have the impression that DPP-4 inhibitors are the oral version of exenatide and liraglutide. Can you explain the difference between these incretin based therapies?
1: Absolutely. And yeah, I hear this so often. I can't tell you the number of times a patient will come in to me and say, oh, yeah, this is the oral version of that exenatide or liraglutide. Oh, my doctor told me that this would work just as well. It's the same thing. Actually, it's not. There is a big difference between the two. Both agents, both uh, classes of drugs, DPP-4 inhibitors and GLP-1 agonists, both enhance GLP-1, but they do it in two different ways. The DPP-4 inhibitors actually focus on our endogenous GLP-1. So they inhibit the enzyme that breaks down our endogenous GLP-1. If you think about it, you can only raise your endogenous levels so high. So we're looking at it from a physiological standpoint. The DPP-4s can only get us to physiological GLP-1 levels. Now contrast that to GLP-1 agonists. They are, as I like to put it, GLP-1s on steroids. They are super physiological doses, and it's able to occur because, of the course, we're doing this pharmacologically. So GLP-1 agonists are pharmacological levels of glp one. So they're bigger, they're stronger, you know, they're definitely much more potent. And that's why you see the difference between the two. Now, I know, again, the side effect profile really speaks for itself based on the mechanism of action. So if you think about it, oftentimes, nausea and vomiting is a side effect affiliated with GLP-1s. And that makes sense because of the fact that they're in such high doses. So the way I like to put it is imagine your GI track. You know, it's zooming, food is just zooming through, and people in type 2 diabetes very often they're always hungry, and that's because of the fact that their GI tract empties faster, three times faster than people without diabetes. Now, if you put a stop sign up at the end of the GI tract, there's only one way for food to come back out. And that's the reason why you see the nausea and vomiting with these drugs because it's a stop sign that's going up because GLP-1 is at such high levels. Now, where is this a difference? Obviously, the difference is in its A1C lowering potential, the side effect profile, and choosing the right drug, again, to meet the patient's needs.
0: In terms of the GLP-1 agonist currently available, what is the difference, if any, between the two agents?
1: Well, currently on the market, we have two agents available, exenatide and Liraglutide. And believe it or not, there is a difference between the two. And we do see a huge market for future ones coming down the road. Uh, the simplest way to explain this is we have short-term or short-acting and long-acting agents. So the shorter-acting agents, of course, need to be dosed more frequently, whereas the longer-actings are less frequently. Now, the other thing is how does this affect the body and how does this affect the side effect profile and the patient's quality of control. If you think about it, the shorter acting agents tend to work mainly on postprandial. So you're going to get a heavier effect, heavy blood glucose lowering effect on the postprandial levels, but not as much on the fasting. The longer the acting, the agent, the more it's going to actually work on both postprandial and fasting. So where is this important? Where does it make a difference? From my talk this morning, we discussed the fact that based on the A1C, we can actually tell you what is the makeup of that A1C, how much is coming from postprandial contribution versus how much from fasting contribution. So if we have an A1C that is 7, 70% of that is coming from postprandial. If you have an A1C of 10, majority of that is coming from fasting. So if you're choosing a short-acting GLP-1 agonist, they're probably more beneficial at an A1C closer to normal because they're heavily postprandial effective. The higher the A1C, you'll get a better effect out of the longer-acting GLP-1. And, of course, there's some new agents on the market that are expected to be out in 2012, And these are going to be once-weekly dosed, which are very long-acting GLP-1 agents. And there's even some studies now on once-monthly dosing GLP-1 agents. So again, the longer-acting they are, the more they'll have effect on both fasting and postprandial. So you need to look at the patient again. What is their A1C? Which postprandial or fasting is out of whack, or is it both? And then picking the drug that affects that target and that A1C. Now, I do want to comment on the fact that, of course, GLP-1 agonists have weight loss as a benefit or adverse event that is a benefit. If we think about that, it's very good, but people think of this as a weight loss drug, and it's not. It's a blood glucose-lowering agent. And sometimes you tend to see more weight loss because of the nausea and vomiting with the shorter-acting drugs, which, again, makes sense just because patients are... Experiencing the nausea and vomiting, they might not be eating as much. So bottom line what I'm trying to say is that lifestyle modification, eating small frequent meals, is essential to this class of drugs just to make sure that they're being most
0: effective. In your practice, what have you learned from patients in terms of GLP-1 agonists?
1: Interesting is that no matter how much we know about a drug, Patients do their own thing. You know, I always tell my students and I always tell other practitioners that I work with, you know, we could be the smartest people in the world, we can know everything about every disease state or every drug, but that doesn't mean a patient is going to take the drug or take it correctly. We see patients doing different things, and keeping in mind adherence is a big issue. I can tell you the more frequently you have to dose a medication, sometimes adherence tends to go to the wayside. Um, Patients that have to take two doses a day often don't take the second dose. And I see a lot with xenotide where patients will actually take the morning dose but not the evening dose because the evening dose would be right before dinner, which is their big meal of the day, and they don't want to be nauseous after dinner. So they do take the morning dose, but then they skip that evening dose. On the same hand, I see patients that take liraglutide, and they may skip. They may take it every other day because it is a longer-acting agent. So, again, patients kind of do their own thing. It's very important as pharmacists and even as healthcare providers, we spend the time to educate the patient on the importance of taking the drug correctly. And then when we follow up with the patient to make sure that they're not having any problems with it. Um, I'd like to share a story of one of my patients in particular uh, I was working with one of the endocrinologists in the area, and he had started this patient on uh, one of the GLP-1 agonists. And after three months, the patient came in, and she had lost about 15 pounds, and she was doing really well. Her A1C was at 8.9. It was now down to 7.4. Everybody was happy. She was happy. You know, The endocrinologist was happy. I was happy. And then she went off and continued on the medication. She comes back again three months later for her follow-up checkup, And we had her lab work. And before we walked into the room, we were looking at her A1C, and it was down to 6.4. Very good. She's at near-normal levels, walk in excited, and walk into the room. The patient's crying. And she's like, I'm never taking this drug again. It's terrible. It's not working for me anymore. I don't want it. And we said, well, what are you talking about? Your A1C is near perfect. It's near-normal levels. It's working really well. She goes, yes, but I haven't lost any more weight. So, you know, many people look at it because, of course, as healthcare providers, we're saying, oh, you know, here's a medication for you, but it is injectable, but it'll cause weight loss to get the patient to take it. And in return, they look at it as a weight loss drug opposed to a blood glucose lowering agent. So I think it's very important that we spend the time to educate the patients to take the medication at the right time
0: to get the best effect with the least amount of side effects. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you for sharing this information with us, Dr. Cornell. Thank you. This concludes this podcast. For additional information about this topic, visit the Educational Initiative web portal at www.cemornings.com.